Welcome everybody to the 13th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in our present historical moment and talk about a few keywords in our self-isolating pyjamas. Today, as guest, we have Benedetta Capellini, and uh, the keyword today is meal. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Benedetta? Certainly I would. Benedetta Capellini is professor of marketing at the University of Durham. Um, her work straddles between marketing and sociology, and together with David Marshall and Elizabeth Parsons, she is the editor of the book, The Practice of the Meal, Food, Families and the Marketplace. So hello, Benedetta. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan. Hello. So, Benedetta, we want to talk about meals today. So if you wanted to approach meal as a keyword, where would be a good place to start? Okay, so if you want to start studying meals, I would probably suggest you to start from a classic. I would say to start from Mary Douglas. Um, I don't know if you come across her work, but Mary Douglas... um, was a prominent uh, anthropologist, was based in London at UCL, and she was very, very influential in the 70s and 80s. Her work is still used today, although I think it's quite unfairly criticized. So in uh, 1972, she start, she wrote this uh, quite seminal work. At least it was seminal when I started my PhD, and I still go back and refer to it. So... Um, the title is actually Deciphering a Meal, and she starts by saying that if uh, food can be approached as a, as a language, uh, a meal then is a code. And actually, she claimed in this article to have um, broken the code. She said, I found the structure of, of a meal. Of course, she was a very, her, her approach to food and meals in general was very structuralist. So she talks about a formula. She talks about A plus B and and so on, which is quite boring. But the interesting things that she talks about, uh, at least the things that I think is a useful tool to think about meal, is the fact that we shouldn't really look at a meal in isolation, but every meal are related to other meals. So in another important keyword of, of her study was this terms of cosmology, this idea that everything is connecting and related to something else. So she talks about how the everyday meals, the evening meals, dinner, should not be analyzed per se, but in relation to other. Uh, So to breakfast, to lunch, and so on. So she claimed to have found this kind of structure. Um, But the other interesting things that she pointed out in her article is this idea that Meals and food in general is a matter of classification, hierarchy, boundaries, and intimacy. So she talks also, and that's the more interesting part of the article, how being welcome to the family meal or to a meal in general is a sign of intimacy. And I have used a little bit this uh, this idea of intimacy and meals when I started looking at leftovers. So if we think about our meals, the ordinary everyday meals in which we well, we eat what is left in the fridge, we would probably not share it with others unless we have a really intimate relation with them. If our boss comes to, to dinner, we will not give our boss our leftover. Yeah. 
So I really like this idea of looking at food as intimacy. So this this work has been attacked quite a lot by um, anthropologists and, and later sociologists because they found that it's really too focused on what we eat rather than how and with whom and, and so on. But it's still very interesting to start looking at what we eat. Yeah, of course, in, a, in interpretivist consumer research, we've been quite a lot focused on the symbolic meaning of, of food, but it's still very, very interesting to look at what we eat. So in 2015, Alan Ward, for example, published together with, oh, I don't remember their name, I think Yates, yeah, um, an article on, um, on appetite, which is a very good journal, by the way, if you are interested in food. And in this article, they look at food diaries from the 1950s to 2012. And they look how diet has changed in the UK. So, they, for example, they, they found that people don't have breakfast anymore at home with others. And most of the time, breakfast is based on convenient, what they call convenient items, cereals most of the time. So cooked breakfast has disappeared. In some cases, consumed at the weekend. Um, and that's a very interesting trend. And I would think it's almost a global trend. Uh, breakfast is now uh, one of this uh, eating episode when we consume on our own very quickly. And um, lunch is pretty much um, following the same trend. So for lunch, we tend to have convenient items, eating on our own. And the main meals is now dinner. Yeah, And there is also this emphasis on the family meal and the morality of eating food together. And you are a terrible family if you don't do so and so on. So there's an interesting things to look at what we what we eat. And you can see that straight away when we look at what we eat, we then go quite immediately into looking at who prepare, how is prepared, with whom we share in the, the everyday meal. So we move almost immediately from a meal as an object to meal as an event. And of course, there is quite a lot of work if we think about even in CCT on meal as an event. We starting from probably the famous article in JCR on Thanksgiving, where we look at the extraordinary meal, what happened when there are extra uh, labor effort put into, into the meal. But I think the most interesting things is actually studying the everyday mundane meals. So what happened uh, when people have meal on a Thursday night, perhaps not during lockdown, but when actually people come back to work and so on. So that's that's probably where I would start thinking about meal. I would start to look at meal as an object and look at the anthropologist and probably not much about the nutritionist, although they still have something to say about how we have changed our diet. And then I will move towards probably more a, a sociological way of looking meal as an event. That's probably how I will start. Uh, the book that you edited is called The Practice of the Meal. So what's yeah. the difference between thinking of meal as practice versus meal as object or as event? 
Okay, so in that book, we moved away to look at a meal just as a as a single episode or as an eating occasion or an event, and we look at how meals is much more related to a broader context. So we started to look at acquisition, so all the work that we done, we what well, we consumers do uh, when they have to acquire food where this is happening, how is this happening, how the marketplace has changed the, this process of acquisition, how certain brands have changed the way we think about meals. And then we move to appropriation. So what we do when this food comes into our homes, yeah, um, how we plan meals, how we establish what to eat, where and with whom. Uh, appreciation is the moment of eating and how this has been now framed as a, a family doing, a practice that make a family, and there is quite a lot of the morality around sharing meals and so on. And the last part, and it's the part that you have contributed with a, with a great piece, Alan, is the, the aspect of disposal. So what happened when actually the meal is over? Who does the washing up? What happened to uh, the leftovers? And what happened when our body is actually processing what we have eaten? Yeah, so all of this is looking at, if you like, the boundary, the connection, the network in which meals are related. So we start from the acquisition and we go to the disposal. But this is not a linear process. There is no end, a beginning and an end. It's actually much more a circle. Yeah. I would like to claim that this is our idea, but actually this idea of the, the cycle of food provisions was an idea of an anthropologist, Jack Goody, that created this uh, cycle of food provision in the 80s. Later was um, the, redeveloped by David Marshall in the 90s and a few years ago by Alan Ward. Um, so what we've done with this book, we have actually made this more focus on the meal. And we looked at how different or apparently dispersed practices are actually all related to this event. Yeah, the event of the meal. Now, one anthropologist that a lot of people who study consumption would be quite familiar with is Daniel Miller. And he has this wonderful line in, in his book, A Theory of Shopping, called Making Love in the Supermarket. Could you please explain what he meant by that? It doesn't mean what you probably you would think. Um, there is no sexual intercourse in the supermarkets, not in his uh, um, ethnography anyway. He talks about the everyday shopping that uh, mothers do and in North London. I think that's where he did his um, ethnography. So he went with mother shopping. And these are, are what you would call the ordinary consumers. So these are not activists. These are not women with a particular political commitment. Most of them actually are on a budget. And he looks at how they uh, they do the everyday shopping, try to save money. Yeah. And of course, this work of saving in the supermarket is an act of love. Yeah. This idea of looking for special offer, uh, looking for the best a deal that you can have with a few pounds you have spared are act act of love. And all this act of love, um, Miller claims, are now directed not to the family anymore, but to children. So he talks, in fact, about devotional mother. And he used the, the term devotion 
in almost in a religious sense, because he talks about sacrifice. And he goes on in explaining how his work is inspired by this notion of sacrifice. So women are sacrificed, they desire uh, to have, uh, I don't know, new clothes or something for themselves. So the hedonic side of, of the consumption. And all of this is redirect to the object of devotion. And the object of devotion is the child. So uh, Miller is quite cynical in saying they don't do any more to the entire family or to the husband because um, most of the time marriage don't go well. So the only probably uh, relations in, in family that is worth considering is the one with, uh, with the children. So that's why mothers are making love in the supermarket thinking about the, the children. So it's an interesting idea of looking the, at the... Um, way that you redirect economic resources. So who is saving and who is spending? So it's this idea that you save, I don't know, a few pounds every day in the supermarket, going to one supermarket rather than another, and how you you respend or you invest what you have saved. So other talks about artificial affluence, and this is a work that other sociologists have done pretty much in the same time that Denny Miller was doing this, his work. So in the 90s and early 2000s, there was quite a lot of interest in, in looking at the ordinary consumption, and this idea of acquisition was particularly prominent in, in, in sociology and anthropology. So that's what the concept of making love in the supermarket actually means. You already mentioned that uh, this idea of a traditional social event of, of the meal has been historically breaking down. So you could read that there's various tendencies of isolation already going on historically with respect to various mealtimes. So would this development uh, work as an analogy for the more general uh, notions of societal fragmentation and individualization in general. Because I remember myself, when I was a child, my parents always wanted to sit down to have meals together. And at the time, I felt this was uh, a tyrannical to force me to do that. Could, could we apply this general idea of uh, sort of uh, fragmentation of the commons and of communality to also reflect on the mealtime? Well, it's a very interesting uh, question, and I'm always a bit careful about uh, this uh, over-celebratory um, idea that having a family meal is actually great things, and it's disappearing, there is a decline, and uh, as you hint, as a child you find that it was torture, right? So there is quite a lot of debate around this, um, and I actually would think that historians are quite important here. So according to some historians, I'm talking about the work of Simone Cinotto, for example, this idea of the family dinner and the family meals is actually, um, it happened in a very, very um, short amount of time. We're talking about probably just the Second World War, and it, it lasts probably uh, a decade, two decades, but it was enough for the advertising industry to make this as a quintessential uh, symbol of the family, the good family, the nuclear family, in fact. The nuclear family that lives in the suburban area, they have their own semi-detached or detached house, and they have this devotional mom and make this uh, very, very good homemade uh, meals. So 
probably this happened to very few of us and in a very, very um, um, small amount of time. If you look, for example, of how kitchen were um, in a small flat, council estate, most of them didn't have enough space to have a table in the in their flat. So we have probably to be careful in thinking about, oh, this idea of communal meals has disappeared because um, we are actually now too busy with our own life. We are actually too busy with our own work or, or hedonic dream and project. I actually think people still share meals. They might not eat meals at the table together, but they might still share food uh, through the day. It might not happen as probably the advertising industry is reminding us is the normal or the proper way to do it. But I still think that we, we shouldn't be too pessimistic in this idea that the family meal is actually disappeared. Because I would actually argue that family meal is really almost um, an invention. In that regard, Benedetta, that invented idea, um, or, or perhaps we might call it the Fordist conception of the family yeah. meal, is very much grounded in a particular type of social reproduction um, and has a specific gender experience as well. Can you talk about how the preparation of the meal relates to women and also in the here and now uh, how that classical or traditional uh, conception has been pressurized? There is quite a lot of work in, um, well, I think sociologists, again, anthropologists, but also people that are interested, in, even economists, in fact. They talk quite a lot about uh, this concept of food work. And food work is about the material, the mental and the social labor that is put into uh, the preparation of, of the meal, the family meal. And it's interesting to look at who does what. And, and of course, if you start looking who does actually the labor, um, but also the planning, so who does the, who is in charge of the food provision? Yeah, the cycle that I was talking about earlier, most of the time are women. And despite the fact that most women are now in the workforce, are actually active um, and they make their own uh, uh, living through work, uh, the responsibility of looking after the family and feeding the family as uh, the vault, the sociology, American sociologist was called, is still a responsibility of women. Now, there are lots of debate about uh, this probably oversimplification of this idea that women are actually doing this because they are they don't have any agency. They're doing this because they are a victim of a structure or patriarchy. And this Partly true, of course. I mean, we, you should be, I mean, everybody can see it, but but there are also quite a lot of interesting other accounts that are emerging on how certain sort of uh, agency is happening when women are actually feeding the family and there is some sort of um, reclaiming some power within the family. And we're talking about maybe um, not the Anglo-Saxon context or the European context, but if we are a little bit broader in our reading, we can see that there are actually other type of um, a relationship that in, in other contexts can emerge when women are in charge of the food for, for the family. Now, I'm not particularly well, I shouldn't be too celebratory in saying that, oh, if you cook for the family, then you are in charge of 
whatever what in the family dynamics. That's that's not the point. The point is that of course there is a quiet and a hidden work when you when there is this idea of feeding the family, especially for women, they have a very few uh, economic resources and financial means. But there are also uh, quite a lot. There is a work of creativity. There is a work of agency in making this happen. And the vault um, that did her um, ethnographic study on American family and looking at the work of uh, of women uh, in feeding families, she talks about how this work is particularly important for certain women because they this is the work and and I'm citing her her own terms that make women particularly womanly. So this is a work that is central to certain identity project, if you want to use this expression. I don't know if it's still in fashion, but it's particularly important for certain women. They might not have much other type of um, identity project, might not have a good, particularly, I don't know, creative job to look forward, or they don't have much more in their life. So actually, it seems quite something that they quite enjoy doing it. So it's not just a constraint and they are not simply victim. I don't know if I if I try if I overcomplicated things, but what I want to say is that it's it's a very difficult argument to look at gender in and food work. What about the heroic masculine celebrity chefs? I hate them all. Can I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, who do, who shall I start with? Well, what's the famous guy? I can't remember. Gordon uh, Ramsay. The Oliver. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. Okay, I have to confess that I hate him. Okay, why don't I don't like him? Uh, he does what in sociologists would call food play. Yeah, so there is this a very macho lad attitude, and food is uh, really done um, as a heroic and very masculine. It's quite aggressive in the way he talks about recipe. He talks about how to make, I don't know, a dessert. It seems that making, I don't know, some sort of casserole is like winning a battle. There is very little consideration of uh, who is eating it. And there are lots of ingredients. That's not probably Jamie Oliver. Maybe Otolenghi is worse than it. So in order to do some of this recipe, you need to have a very, very well-stocked pantry. You need to have a really, really have a big fridge to store lots of this type of ingredients. And everything is uh, almost uh, this kind of technical perfections. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's this art which is very um, narrated in a very masculine way. But the things that I really dislike the most is most of these men don't talk, would never talk in terms of the role of fathers, for example, or cooking for their wives or, or friends. Well, Jimmy Oliver does look, uh, talk about uh, cooking for friends, but most of the time is talking in terms of professionals. Yeah, and everything is perfect. And this is a very, very masculine way of talking about food, which is very far from the everyday feeding. Yeah, that's happening. So if you think, for example, uh, Nigella, Nigella Lawson talks quite a lot about her family, talking about, she talks a little bit about, uh, not now, but when the chil- her children were younger, she, she used to talk quite a lot about feeding the, the children, her children. But um, that there is another problem with Jamie Oliver that I have is all um, moral entrepreneurship. So I don't know if you if you know a bit about his idea of uh, 
improving life condition of uh, the less fortunate ones. Um, but the way he does it is a very heroic. First of all, it does through TV reality show. And I have a little bit of a problem of this kind of touristing into people misery to start with. But it's this idea that food is the problem and the problem can be solved through food without uh, acknowledging that food most of the time is inserted in much broader problem yeah so in his 2004 um work well tv show on a school dinner he went into the yorkshire in some yorkshire village and he was showing how this working class mom were terrible because they didn't know how to cook asparagus they never actually saw maybe one in their whole life. They were just giving junk food to their children. And this was terrible. And he uh, went and uh, was teaching them how to cook. And then he solved the problem and he drove his uh, expensive car back to Chelsea or wherever he lives. So I have a lot of problem with this celebrity. But most of the time I have a problem with the fact that they are presenting this uh, very a political way of looking at uh, at food. And even when they're talking about political issues, like um, the poor diet, that people, they, they are on a budget, most of the time um, are forced to live with, they never acknowledge that these are problems they, they should be looked in a macro level rather than, you know, it's, it's, it's blaming the, the, the poor, if you like. Yeah, and so it's this idea of deserving and deserving poor. It's your fault if you are obese and so on. And I think this is, is, a, is a very problematic way of looking at feeding, eating, and your body just as a neoliberal project that you are in control with, when we all know very well that you are not really in control of it. Against my better nature, and not to turn this into a Rotten Tomatoes review completely, I have to ask about another chef where psychological violence and anger becomes entertainment. And this would be, of course, Gordon Ramsay. So, so I, I, I really, what do you think of uh, his particular brand? Well, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's do a bit of gossip for a moment. I know people that know him and they say that he's actually like that in his real life. So I don't know if this is true, but um, it's really this very masculine, very, um, I think it's probably an extreme of all the others, this masculine and heroic uh, attitude that if you fight, you you will get there. And, and I, I really dislike, I, I don't watch many of his programs to start with, but this idea that he can go and he's the hero and he solve all the problem. It's really far from what I think is happening in people's kitchen, but even in, in restaurants, to be honest. I, the, restaurants are not really my area of expertise, but this idea that there is always a drama and it's a huge drama because you have a cooked carrot, I think it's a bit of a, an exaggeration, really. And then, of course, there's all of the competitive uh, reality TV shows like MasterChef 2, which uh, could we just say that they are just taking competitiveness and that sort of neoliberal attitude as a metaphor, at least, to our kitchens as well then, because, of course, these shows feature uh, non-celebrities. 
Yes, but it's, it's again, it's replicating this um, idea of emphasis on technical skills or particular type of ingredient, and which I think is, for an, an aesthetic point of view, they might be quite interesting to look, if you look at them as a work of art, so food as an artistic expression, but I think it's really far removed from what is happening in people's lives. So that's probably why we are also quite attracted to that. But it's really something that I can't, I don't really find interesting in any shape or form. Paul Hewer have done a lot of work with on, on that. So they, they might know quite a lot more that I, I know. And I know they published quite a few pieces on uh, Jamie Oliver, for example, and they talked quite a lot about this idea of food, food porn. So that's probably what, if, if, you, if you are interested in knowing more about it, that's probably what I would suggest you to look at. I'd like to ask you, Bernadette, about the uh, cosmopolitan um, food, because I grew up, for example, in the 1980s, where there was a very limited palate generally in Ireland, for example. Um, and then during the, the noughties, there was just a sudden inflow of different food cultures, which linked, of course, to um, waves of immigration as well. Um, so firstly, I'd like to ask about the progressive aspect of how we can experience the other true foods and in a sense that that allows for an appreciation. But then on the other hand as well, how this can also lead to a type of exoticization and also in many cases uh, racism as well. I'm thinking now, for example, of Michael Rustons, uh, the, the psychoanalyst who wrote about how when the Windrush generation came to, to Britain, that there was this obsession with the smell of their food. It's so like people's nostrils were being invaded by um, these foreigners and that this was kind of experienced as something disgusting and very distressing. Few things. I think if we look at the food provision aspect to start with, at least in the UK, I don't know in Ireland, certainly not in, in, in Italy, where I grew up in the 80s, like you and uh, oh, there were very little um, exotic food, as it's referred to as this idea of food that comes from somewhere else. Okay, so I think in the 90s and 80s, uh, what happened, at least in the UK, there was this, what Ben Fine called um, supermarket war. So lots of supermarkets were almost facing bankrupticity. So um, they were almost bankrupt. Yeah, that's how I should say. So most of the supermarkets were almost bankrupt. So they start investing heavily in uh, stocking the new food. So... All this idea that in the 80s and 90s, uh, in the 90s, people start suddenly to be very creative and uh, have uh, this appetite for exotic food might be also tr need to be counterbalanced to what happened in the market. Yeah, so supermarkets start to show a lot of different type of food. And uh, of course, uh, we start to see quite a lot of celebrity, Delia Smith, which is not particularly probably fancy now, but you start to see all these people that start uh, cooking exotic food, which at the time could have been, I don't know, some sort of lasagna or something that now is, 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 very, is seen as very mundane. So that's what happened in the supermarket. Then, of course, you have migration. And then you have people in, in countries that start to have their the own food. And some communities, more than others, started to have their own restaurants. 
Um, of course, you have in the UK the case of Bolti, yeah, this invention of Pakistan uh, community um, for for the UK market, this idea of Indian or anyway kind of Indian Pakistani food that is um, is typical of of the Midlands. Yeah, of course you have racism, and racism is quite interesting when you have this idea of exotic food without the others. So you have this kind of appropriation of somebody else's food and items without actually wanting to have any contact with them. So it's this idea that you want to acquire yeah, a, a more of a, a well different taste. I think probably the work of uh, Alan Ward and Lydia Martins that they did in the na- 90s, this idea of eating out um, in the UK will be quite relevant here. So this idea of you want to try many other type of cuisine, as many as you can, and you want to be as confident as you can in eating different type of food, because variety is the new sign of distinction, new in the 90s and 2000s. So this idea that if you are confident and competent in eating all of this type, this type of, of food, that's a sign of distinction. So, and this, of course, is without any engagement and without any entertaining any sort of uh, relations with the people that are actually producing that food. So this is probably is twisting what I said at the beginning about um, Mary Douglas understanding of food, this idea if you share food with somebody, you share some sort of intimacy. That's proof that is actually not the case. So you are actually sharing, and well, consuming someone else's food without wanting to have anything to do with that person. But this happened quite a lot also with the local food. So when I did my PhD in the Midlands, um, one thinks, and I published that a um, few years ago in sociology, one thinks that was very interesting with the, with the, the middle class cosmopolitan or omnivore, uh, would you say, um, participants, that they were really interested in engaging in, in a lot of different type of, uh, of cuisine, but they were not interested at all in consuming working class food, what probably some activists will celebrate as a as a form of slow food part of the slow food movement yeah so they they actually of course this idea of not not wanting to engage with someone else's food is a sort of racism but it's also um related to class yeah if you like if this idea of middle class and working class diet should not go together you can share someone else's food, but up to a point without any form of intimacy. So that's probably what I would say about this idea of uh, what happened in the early 90s, probably in the UK, 2000, about this explosion of um, appetite for exotic food. First of all, it started with the supermarket war. Then, yes, of course, there was the migration item, migration aspect. But there is also this idea of a competitive middle class. And this is where the work on taste become particularly interesting. So for middle classes, well, that's my understanding. Taste is never per se. Taste is never as a user value. It's always as a matter of exchange. You always have to have some sort of capital that you might want to reinvest. So 
this idea that having an exotic uh, appetite and knowing quite a lot about food is a form of investment, yeah, to accumulate value for yourself. So that would be my answer. Also, Benedetta, another more contemporary um, issue is the idea of self-optimization. And we have this kind of, the idea of the omniferous and cosmopolitan consumer, who's also nonetheless very preoccupied about keeping their weight. And and then we have this kind of strange double act between wanting to eat a lot, but also not wanting to eat too much. It's a sort of bulimia, right? Well, I don't know. It seems that people that are cooking a lot, especially now in lockdown, but I don't know what do they do with the food they have cooked. I think more than cooking is this idea that you appreciate food and you know food. I don't know how much you actually eat it. Because, yes, I agree with you. There is this idea that you have also to to have a, a fantastic body, but... Nevertheless, you need to know all this type of food. You need to have um, some sort of competence and be confident in talking about them. So I don't really, I haven't still understood. But again, probably the work of Alan Ward might be useful here. He talks about food antinomies and it's something that he did in the late 90s. I think 1997, he talks about different way we think about food and he talks about four antinomies, and one of that is health versus uh, indulgence. So probably what you're referring to is exactly this antinomy. So one hand, you want to indulge yourself, this source of this hedonism, this idea of uh, pleasure, but you have also to display a healthy body because healthy body has some sort of morality in it. And this idea that if you have a healthy body, your person can control, control yourself. But you have also to know about food because this is becoming something that is very valuable. So it's this kind of balancing, this uh, these two uh, contrasting terms, I guess. If we if we think of the situation of lockdown and uh, social or physical distancing, Benedetta, you've been very interested in meals and food uh, from a practice-based perspective. Uh, what would be some of the interesting th- things you're noticing around you now when all these practices that were more or less taken for granted are undergoing these dramatic shifts, eruptions, slippages, and in effect reconfigurations all around us? One thing I would probably say would be, I mean, I know that there is a lot of interest on how middle classes now are baking and so on. But to me, the more interesting things would probably be not in what people do with the food in their kitchen, but what happened in terms of acquisition, how food comes home, if you like. So um, I don't know in in other countries, but in the UK, there is quite a lot of um, interest on food banks that apparently now are becoming more and more prominent which I think is disgraceful, by the way, that uh, the state is completely withdrawing for any sort of uh, initiative in supporting people that, for whatever reason, they can't yeah, acquire food for themselves. So there is quite a lot of this um, very sticky and particularly, I, I really dislike this um, narrative about heroic, the everyday heroes, the volunteer that goes and... Is he not or she amazing that he provides fresh uh, items for the old lady that is stuck in the village or for this, old, this family 
mainly immigrants, because that's what they are showing quite a lot on television. They, they can't have any food. And of course, all of this is very well up to a point. And the point is that there is no accountability of what these people are giving to others. So food banks, well, food banks operate as an emergency, but this is becoming the norm. And the problem I have with food banks is nobody check or very little, there is very little accountability on what food is provided to people that are in need and why do people should uh, wait for uh, this charitable and heroic? Why should we wait for the hero to provide food that, for people that are in need? So what I would say that is particularly interesting to me at the moment is the way there is this narrative around the hero that is provide food for the people are in need, the one that can't have it. So that how food bank has been, nobody question anymore the existence of food bank. Nobody question anymore the fact that some of these food banks, for example, are related to religious uh, organization. And I don't know now, probably not, it's not the case, but for some ethnographic work that we've done in the past, there was this idea that for some religious food banks, um, users, because that's how they are called, should also come and participate yeah, to the activity of, of the food bank. And I found this, well, disgusting, really. Yeah, so that's probably where I will, uh, well, that's where my interest would be at the moment, to look at how food banks have been um, conceptualized and portrayed by the media. We should just add for people who are not living in the UK who might not be aware of what a food bank is. They're run by charities um, and they're places for people to go if they can't get access to food. But they're also very much linked into the British social welfare system in that often people have their social welfare withheld from them, but are given these kind of vouchers that they can go to a food bank in the veil of charity. So it's a really kind of cruel uh, mark of, of, of poverty and it's something which has hugely escalated in the UK these past few years. Yeah, and um, well, there are some that are also related to union. Most of them are related to religious organization, but there are few that are still related to union, at least in the Midlands, uh, although they operate really in a very much more informal way. And the most uh, important one is actually food banks that is operated as a franchise and is related to Church of England. Now, Benedetta, try, as I do, not to be a middle-class cliché. Um, I find myself uh, learning how to bake sourdough bread, which seems to be yet another affliction, um, which includes setting a podcast, by the way. Like, what's going on with all this baking? And there's currently a yeast shortage going on. What, what do you make of it all? I don't know. I think it's quite boring. Have you actually done the baking, Alan? Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. It's a nice way of punctuating the day. You know, it takes several hours. You can do it with a child at the end. It's quite satisfying. Yeah, sure. Colin Campbell in 2005 wrote an article on the craft consumers. I don't know if you read it in Journal of Consumer Culture. And he was talking about how the middle classes, they are in terribly bored with their professional life or whatever is going on in, the, in their life, what they're doing, they're going um, back home, yeah, if you like, back to the kitchen. And they find into the dom domesticity something quite reassuring. Well, they're frustrated because they can't show their creativity at work. 
which is I don't think is your case, Alan. But anyway, they um, Colin Campbell talks about this craft consumer because it's through crafting, through actually assembling together this. Uh, brands or this uh, mass-produced items like, I don't know, East or something like that. They create something that is, as you just may say, very satisfying, but also quite easy to do. So you don't have uh, particularly high technical skills that you need to, to, to have. Well, you can get wrong, but not, not massively wrong. So Campbell talks about cooking, gardening, and um, I don't know, DIY or doing a bit of sewing, knitting, all this type of almost innocuous activities that you can do at home to have some sort of creativity that somehow has been stolen from you in the workplace. So that probably would be the way I will start thinking about all this idea of uh, uh, why people are into baking a lot. But I don't know why people are getting obsessed with uh, actually bread. That's I don't know. Baking it seems to be the, the, the way to go if you are middle class. Now, you already mentioned that uh, one of the key things that changes in this current situation is the logistics or if, should I say personal logistics of acquiring foodstuffs from the supermarket and so on. And of course, we've all seen the news headlines of empty shelves and people stockpiling particular items for their households, foods and otherwise. And uh, often these seem uh, far from very utilitarian notions and they become more symbolic. What are some of the things you've noticed about, for example, uh, it seems like every week, uh, different items are the focus of certain enthusiasm for finding safety or security or some such. Yeah, so the toilet paper was the, the, the first one, right? At least, not, not in Italy, but at least in the UK or in, in the US, there was a quite a lot of shortage of toilet paper. So there were quite a lot of things on Twitter as well. But for toilet paper, I think Alan is the expert here. So he, he might know more about it. But what I think is... Uh, so why did people rush into the supermarket? That's to me the interesting things to start with before looking at the items. So I think they start, they are, well, we, we have been, because I, I put myself into it, although, although I didn't stockpile or anything, but there was this idea that we are irrational, we are stupid, look, we will might not have any job soon, but we are spending all our money going into supermarket and buy things. But probably that was the very few things that we knew we could do it. And we knew that, well, who trusts Trump? Who trusts uh, Boris Johnson? Who trusts the prime minister? I don't know where uh, you guys, but I, probably lots of people don't. So uh, polls shows that uh, very few people are actually trusting the, the leaders in the way they are dealing with uh, COVID-19. So probably the way that they were responding to this is not actually rational after all. It was this idea of holding to the few certain um, well, few things that you you know in your life, supermarket, yeah. So in a sense, they were trusting more the market, the marketplace than than the government. Of course, there are items that are coming and going in the shopping list. So toilet papers now are not an emergency anymore. Although you could argue that people, because they spend more time at home now, 
they might need more toilet paper. If you are in the office nine to five, you don't need much toilet paper at home. So probably people were not so stupid in uh, buying an extra pack of toilet paper, right? So I don't know, probably I wouldn't say that people are so irrational in uh, in going to the supermarket and buy extra of, of something that they might need to, to have at home. It goes back to this idea of Colin Camber that we're talking about the comfort uh, of the craft consumers, this uh, domesticity. That's probably one of the few things that we are still sure about. So there's one more really important question uh, for me, uh, and that would concern the gargantuan issue of meatballs. Could I please ask you to uh, share the story you were telling us right before we started? So there is this article in the Financial Times of the weekend. So I confess that I don't do bread, but I read Financial Times over the weekend. So Alan, you can now use this as many times as you want. So it's called, this article is called Lockdown Cooking Goes Low Brown with Fast Food Classics. And it's written by Rebecca Rose. So she talks about that she's bored in uh, cooking salad or pasta dishes that remind her exotic holiday or uh, half-term breaks. And she talks about turning her interest on fast food items. Items that she claimed to have tasted here and there with her family, and they are part of the everyday, the normal, apparently. So she talks about replicating uh, IKEA meatballs at home. But she also says something interesting that I didn't know, that McDonald's and other uh, food chains have publicized the recipe of the best items, the best menus, um, and they've done to readapt the recipe to be cooked at home. So she's really embraces this trend of um, cooking what she calls fast food or junk food. And it's interesting to, probably this is a new twist in terms of distinction, this idea that probably sourdough is so now middle class that the upper class needs to move somewhere and to distance themselves. So that's the way I would read it anyway. But it's a great, uh, it's, a, it's a fun, funny things to read, really. Uh, it also kind of reminds me something about, in a more kind of pessimistic sense, it reminds me of the seduction of uh, consumption as sort of entertainment according uh, during the day. So maybe you don't feel so secure to, uh, in going to Ikea anymore. So now you are replicating this Ikea experience at home, even though we could probably have many opinions about how great those meatballs are and so on. But somehow you're bringing a slice of that consumption experience back to your home, even though you could do any other type of food as well. Yeah, she mentioned what you just said. Not even hidden in plain sight then. Okay. (laughs) Thanks very much, Benedetta. I've learned a lot about food and meals. Yeah, that was great, Benedetta. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, guys.